Welcome, boys and girls, homo sapiens and reptiles, children of all ages to Luxury Tax. Logan, how we doing? You know, I've had a rough weekend attending uh, grad parties, which consist of just ripping through White Claws, the enough that could kill a dead horse or a baby horse. Well, we're just going to professionally ignore that line of commentary. Um, well, this is the special edition draft recap episode of Luxury Tax, and you know, it was a doozy, as expected. Um, for those of you who actually watched the live coverage of the draft, you know, we salute you. For those of you who simply scrolled your timeline while Emperor Woj um, delivered everything two minutes early, that's cool too. Um, however, if you simply scrolled your timeline, I think you missed a really kind of powerful moment that was one of the highlights of the draft where, where Zion, you know, Zion, a brick shit house of a human being, you know, Maria shoves the, the microphone right into his face and you can see him just trembling. You know, you can see the emotion just cascading through him and he's struggling with all his might to pull himself together. Um, I, I don't know. I think the, I think the reason that was so, um, so jarring was that like this entire you know, this entire four years of the Zion extravaganza, it has always seemed so inevitable that he's the chosen one, that this was such a natural, you know, inevitable trajectory for him. And for him to sit there on the stage and go, you know, I'm not supposed to be here, kind of like what LeBron said, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't know I was going to make it. I don't know. That really hit me hard. I think that Zion is different from other number one picks and other prodigies in the way how he expresses hum his humility. Because I think he truly believed that up until draft night that he could go number two, number three. Like, everyone around him is telling him he's going one basically since midway through the, this college basketball season. And I don't think he fully grasped that until it happened on draft night. He didn't want to believe it because he always wants to be determined to take his game to the next level. And I think never settling is just part of who Zion is and what his game is and what he's all about. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to read too much into the sincerity of that response. But, like, I think of, you know, a couple guys around the league. Like, if, if you would have asked D'Lo draft night, you know, did you expect to be here? He'd be like, you know, fuck yeah. Oh, actually, I expected to go number one. You know, a guy like Simmons, like, oh, yeah, you know, I always was going number one. You know, it's interesting to see – Zion demonstrate that level of just like humanity, almost that level of humility. Um, I thought that was, I don't, I thought that was the standout moment of the night because, you know, like Ja was really, he was really, um, you know, likable and, and had great character, Barrett, but Zion, it felt like <laughs> it just, like he just seized the moment emotionally. It felt like he was just, completely absorbed and immersed in the gravity of the situation. Um, so, you know, as usual, I've been, I've been scouring the interwebs and checking out 
what the mainstream media has to say about this draft. And oh, I want to hear your take on um, what do you think about like how CBS and the Bleacher Report and all of these different actors, they do these draft grades. Like, well, how do you feel about that? Draft grades are just the most recent line of absurd prisoner of the moment takes that the media has just overtaken as a way to clickbait a Bleacher Report driven audience into retweeting and reposting their material. If you look at old draft takes, Pascal Siakam, for example, I guarantee you on draft night that ra- that Raptors pick probably got what a D minus, maybe a C minus. The the Bucks right. Giannis pick in 2013 probably got an F at the time. And like, of course you guys have guys like Georgia's Giannis, Georgia Papa Giannis, and that like Thon Maker 2016 draft. All those picks got like F reviews too and like yeah that looks rational to give that an f but you cannot deliver a grade draft night and then three months later players playing well and then rational just you said the confirmation bias kicks in and you just are just enshrined with this like what like higher than thou attitude of i predicted this when in reality you like looked up two minute highlight video of them playing against like Moorhead State, where they dunked on someone, and that's why you gave them a B plus A minus draft grade, right? Right. No, I'm like it's just the sheer pompous audacity to think that you know you are this omnipotent like you're this omnipotent well of insight who can derive from one pick in in two minutes exactly how that player fits with the organization and whether or not who fucked up and you know how that player how that player what they showed in college is going to mesh with NBA talent like you're operating under this massive pool of assumptions and unknown variables and then like packaging it in this little paragraph long analysis of like Oh yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, Romeo Langford at fourteen. Well, I give I give this a D plus because he uh, he shot twenty seven percent with his hand broke in college. It's like these people are paid. Like it just blows my mind. You know, just the oh, it blows my mind if I was a player having to read that junk. I don't think they do. I I sure hope not. I mean, it would just be detrimental to your psyche if you paid attention to everything the media said about you. Especially, especially, especially I mean, a guy like Nasir Bull Bull, who just falls that far, you're already feeling not the greatest on draft night, and then you just go read that that pick. Oh, it's either a oh, it's an absolute steal, or oh, this is the reason. These are the reasons they fell. Like, I think there's certain players that get a chip on their shoulder from that and it just drives them to become better but then there's a lot that it can really hit them hard it's yeah i mean and that's i did want to transition into talking about what was the most catastrophic free fall of the night being first of all nasir from you know expected around 10 5 to 10 to 25 um and then bowl bowl falling all the way to like 40 to the nuggets um you know, I'll like before the draft as someone and I watched Nasir, I'm a, you know, huge Carolina supporter. I'm a guy who watched Nasir play all year. Um, 
a lot of the suspicions did ring true. He struggled with touch. He struggled with understanding spacing, understanding point of attack on defense, understanding cutting angles and timing on offense. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the criticism I think was valid. Um, in terms of bowl, I, I think the GMs were scared, to be honest. I think GMs were scared to get fired. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I mean, you're looking at a Bondmaker 2.0 type prospect where, I mean, well, at least we know his age, right? But <laughs> he just <laughs> a lot of question marks on the defensive end. Is his motor high enough? Can he rotate well? Is he physical enough? Will he be able to put on the necessary weight? Just those question marks alone, and then combine that with a pretty detrimental injury. It, that's scary for a guy that's seven two, seven three, and you have a prospect that like could just be taken off the floor immediately, even even as he grows as a player, just from a like physical standpoint alone. Like we saw what happened with um Hashim yeah, the I'm- beat out of UConn. You remember? Like five, five or six years ago, where was he? He was a lot. He had to be a lottery pick, yeah. correct? And he yeah. was a lottery pick to OKC. Yeah, he he couldn't stay on the floor. He could not stay on the no. floor. So, like, does Bull Bull have the ability to be a transcendent talent, especially on the offensive end, if his shot translates? Sure, but he also has the possibility just to be just horrendous bust. And when you look at that, and like you said, GMs are scared. But in this draft, with just like the lack of top-end talent and the lack of prospects with a really high ceiling, I still find it strange that he wasn't at least a late first-round pick for a playoff team that looks at him as a just a long-term project. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see both sides of the river on this one. I think like what he demonstrated at Oregon in terms of his versatility, ball handling on the perimeter, um, just the fluidity of his shooting stroke, his confidence in it, all of that was impressive enough to validate taking a chance, really honestly, first round, second round, whatever. Um, where, where I understand why people got the heebie-jeebies is look at where – his center of gravity is on the court, the way that he carries himself, the way that he moves and just like the, like the simple, like, like I'm talking about like physics lever sort of um, like understanding of the game, the way he employs his body. It's honestly like nothing we've really seen. <laughs> like it's, it's like, no, exactly. Cause at what at seven three, Porzingis can still move very fluidly, and that was really never a worry with him. With Bull Bull, you see like him take a couple quick steps, and you you think you might just fall over, like it's scary. Right. Right, and I think I think a lot of GMs were you know as we're looking at the sort of bigs that are having tons of success in the league right now, you know a Julius Randle, a Montrez Harrell, even a guy like Cantor, guys who are really prospering off having just thick lower body strength uh-huh, and using exactly. their hips and their torso to carve out space in the paint. I think, you know, there's <laughs> there's some nightmares dancing in some GM's heads about 
bull bull going out there and just getting absolutely blitzkrieged on the glass, you know? And oh, exactly. And I don't know if I can even name a player above seven feet in the NBA that is of bull bull's stature and has really seen success in like a more than 15 minute per game role. Yeah, no, for sure. There's no precedent for it. No. Because that body type, it just does not bode well, especially in this new era where if you're going to have a big that kind of has the bull bull type of game, they're mostly like perimeter players. And if they're not, they're just massive. Um, there's the, you like, there's Steven Adams, they're Nurkic size, they're Jokic, just thick lower body, huge arms, very physical. Right. Um. And so, you know, like, like I said, we, <laughs> we at Luxury Tax, we don't want to fall into the trap of being the, uh, the, the sort of um, grumpy, bully substitute teachers who come in and grade NBA organizations on how we suppose they did. Um, the lens through which we're trying to view the draft is a lens of where is the game at right now? Where is the game headed you know, what sort of new innovative strategies are teams using with their personnel? And, you know, just what what stood out to us in terms of how teams are progressing along the lines of those strategies? Um, what, like, one big standout moment for me was Harrow at 13 from the Heat. Um, you know, what, what do you think of Harrow going forward? Just what's your take on him? I mean, for starters, he had just more drip than a broken faucet on draft night. That man's <laughs> suit was on fire. I mean, just dripping with swagger. But uh, no, beyond that, I think Miami continues to take players that have shown promise shooting the ball. Obviously, Hero being one of the better shooters in this draft, but not really like a huge upside there in terms of, like, an all-star potential, which is weird because Miami doesn't have a lot of playmakers. They've always had a really nice bench, and I think you're just adding another piece to that future bench. I mean, you could possibly turn into, like, a good role-playing starter, but My- Miami, I like, they, they're not getting any action free agency, most likely, and I think that it's odd that with 13, they went with a guy like Hero, who doesn't really project to be an all-star, but honestly, as a really solid game and could fit in with a different team, I just – I don't know what M- Miami is looking at long-term. Like, do they expect to get a guy in free agent, an all-star in free agency, or do they just want to continue building this bench and, like, get that eight seed, get that seven seed, and lose in the first round? I mean, so admittedly, you know, and I don't – I don't place any sort of blame on Miami here because, you know, if you look at this draft after, after Hachimura at nine to the wizards, reddish at 10 to the Hawks and then Suns took Cameron Johnson at 11 and then PJ Washington to the Hornets at 12, you know, after Harrow, you're getting into some murky territory. You know, it was like Celtics Langford, Pistons Seku, Magic, um, Chuma Okiki, then Nikhil Alexander Walker, you know, like the amount of like, surefire NBA starters starts to really teeter off oh, after ab- we got past 12. Absolutely. And I, I'm talking about, about this extensive view, not on the podcast, but 
you often see from late lottery to early 20s this kind of void of proven talent and just absolute long shots of players, either like defensive spe- specialists like Matisse Thibault or foreign prospects nice. like Batad- Goga Batadze. And then once you reach kind of back into the 24, 23-ish territory, you get like playoff contenders that take guys like Ty Jerome, like Dylan Windler, like Grant Williams that can just come in right away and give you something off the bench, just proven like juniors or seniors in college, right? Right. And so, yeah. like, you're right. When when you get to that 13, 12 area, late lottery, you you kind of hit that point where you have to make the decision of, do we want to take a guy who proved himself to be at least a capable basketball player in college, or are we going to take a guy like Seku, like Romeo, like Chuma, maybe face some injuries, maybe has a huge question mark in terms of his jump shot, maybe played overseas and didn't have the best statistics. Like that That's a big decision for front offices, especially when you need to take a chance on a guy and you don't have a true star in your organization. It's a, it's a tough decision. Yeah, and, you know, the thing with Harrow is the popular question marks that people brought out you know, they trotted out as usual were, you know, can he defend at an NBA level? Like, I actually think, I actually think my concerns lie on offense. Like if you watched Kentucky this year, Harrow defended his ass off, you know, like Harrow was, he was jumping into, he was jumping into passing lanes. He had a ton of like, he had a ton of perimeter steals in which like, it was like full bore left hand extended out tip, sprint into the fast break you know i actually think his defensive prowess and his defensive instincts are underrated now where my question marks start is he's undersized and you know if he can develop into simply being a great spot up player that's fine but i don't see what i I didn't see at kentucky him being able to, to consistently manufacture quality looks off the dribble no, and that's that's why I went on that little rant about Miami taking guys that fit pretty seamlessly into a bench role, but don't project much higher in terms of like a high-grade fringe all-star starter. Is right. that you, you don't have a lot of shot creation with Hero, but you have a lot of catch and shoot. He can pro- probably going to be able to light it up at the next level. And I and like you said, I think that his perimeter help D and just jumping into passing, like he showed a lot of flashes that he can hang with almost anyone on defense eventually in the NBA, but the real concerns there lie on can he create his own shot? How is he going to fit into our offensive system? Will he be able to be a starter on our offensive system? For sure. And then, yeah, so Harrow went, Harrow went 13 and now two picks earlier was an absolute scorcher of a pick that, that rocked universes far and wide with Cam Johnson at 11 to the Suns. Um, so like, yeah, I, I, you know, religiously watch every Carolina game and this guy can flat out play. I like the truth is this guy can flat out play, you know, am I going to sit here and defend him going 11? I don't know, but I mean, I watched, you know, I watched every single Carolina game and without a, without a doubt, without any doubt at all, the undisputed leader on that team. A team that had Luke May, 
you know, Kobe White, who went, you know, top 10 to Chicago, a team that had Nasir, who was the ESPN, you know, first player ranked. Um, Cam Johnson was the undisputed leader, and he was undisputed the go-to scorer when they needed a bucket on offense. In crunch he time, could, yes. In crunch time, he could manufacture, you know, a ton of nice little floaters off the dribble with the right hand. He made a ton, an absolute ton of tough, deep looks that, you know, no one else in the country made with the sort of proficiency he did. Um, I'll defend this pick. No, and I, and I agree, especially in this draft class, when you have a guy that is a volume shooter like Cam Johnson and proven as a volume shooter. I'm going to look up his attempts. I think he was around seven or eight attempts per game from three and hit that at over a 40% clip. And they were all, like, difficult looks. He was, he was not getting easy looks at Carolina. And I don't think no. – he didn't, he didn't like taking easy looks for the most part. But um, it was – Shot forty five percent from three on six attempts per game his senior year. That's freakish. That is insane. That 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 is arguably qualifies him as like the top tier of shooters in college basketball last year. Absolutely. And so when you're talking about a guy who has his physical stature at like six nine, two hundred ten pounds, he's pretty filled out. He's got nice measurements nice and tangibles and can just fill it from deep and can create his own looks off the dribble despite him maybe not having that much more room to grow as a player you're looking for value if you're the Suns here to surround with Aiden to surround with Booker and I I can't hate that pick oh no I you know if, if you're if you're the Suns and you can get proven scoring you know a guy who who it's not like, oh, if he could add this and he could add that and develop this, then maybe he could be something. I'm looking at you, Josh Jackson. I'm looking at you, Elio Kobo. I'm looking at you, every draft pick the Suns have ever had. I'm at you. <laughs> no, it's like you can get Cam Johnson in an open run, you know, with Chris Brickley or, you know, in Drew League or something. And it doesn't matter who he's going against. He's going to do what he does. You know, he understands himself. He understands his game. I completely agree. Um, All right. Well, I do want to talk about the the quintessential dark horse in this draft and the mystery man himself, Darius Garland. Um, so there was a point where Billis compared Garland to noted South African golfer Louis Oosthuizen and compared Oosthuizen, like the, co- the compact fluidity of his swing, to Garland's jump shot. And at first, you know, I, I jumped to, wow, that's absolutely outrageous and ridiculous. But the more I watch Garland's jump shot, especially like his high school stuff, I mean, it is a thing of beauty. I mean, it is absolutely riveting. Oh, just the release point, the balance, everything about it is just magical. Yeah, it is. It is. A, like, it is a thing of beauty. It's it's one of the better, more fundamentally sound shots that we've seen coming out of college in a long time. Yeah, and I mean, and it, it, it does. It, it scares me. The, like, does it scare you that the Cavs? took a guy at five who played four games for a team that didn't win a, a single game in the SEC. 
No, what scares me is that they're going to have a backcourt of Colin Sexton and Darius Garland, both like sub-six three-point guards, and Sexton <laughs> is incredibly ball-dominant. That's what scares me. <laughs> yeah, I I share your fear there. I um, what what did you think about the rest of that Cavs draft with Windler and um, Porter Jr.? I really like the Windler pick. I think again you're getting a value pick at twenty six of a guy in Windler who has nice measurables. He's six seven, nice fluid shot, just could absolutely nail it in transition. Um, he averaged. 42, 43% from three on seven attempts per game his senior year. Jesus. And, um, no, he's 6'8", he's 200. And so, like, you, we've seen similar players. Um, there was a shooter of Syracuse a couple of years ago of similar stature. I forget what his name was. Was it Routens, maybe? Not or... Routens. Um, no. I don't know. We see guys come along out of these mid-majors that are, like, high-volume shooters, and they come into the NBA, and it's just kind of a hit or miss. But at 26, like, if you can get a future, like, Bogdanovich possibly, I don't, right. I don't know if you get it to that extent, but it's, it's, it's a nice value pick. And I, think, I didn't realize Porter Jr. got drafted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he got he um he got traded by by he got traded by the Pistons. That pick got traded by the Pistons to Cleveland. Oh and oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, Kevin. Yeah, I thought you, I thought about Jante Porter. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, Jante Jante's body unfortunately fell apart and to the to the great dismay of of my heart and passing bigs fans everywhere. No, I will say that as a uh, freshman at Missouri, I would walk into the rec center to play some pickup basketball and would spot Jonte Porter often with a knee brace on running fives full court. So am I shocked that he re-injured his ACL? No, absolutely not. Hey, I mean, it's, it's a for the love of the game clause. You can't take that man off the court, you know? I mean, no, he you, went down doing what he loved. You can't, but... Wow, you're losing out on a lot of money there from being a projected lottery pick, ten million in the bag to no guaranteed contract. That's rough. That is rough. Well, we'll see. I mean, if his if his brother can carve out a decent career, then he can uh he can siphon some of that bag, hopefully. True. Well we'll see what happens. I still think that because his game wasn't dependent on athleticism whatsoever he could come back and still have a Horford-type style of play that really isn't dependent on speed or quickness. It's dependent on basketball IQ. It's dependent on body positioning, passing from the short corner to the elbow, hitting the corner three, just spot-ups. I don't know. I think I think depending on how catastrophic that injur- the second ACL tear really was, we could see Jonte Porter's name come up again here in a year or so. Yeah, I mean, you said Al Horford. My Jonte Porter comp is far more NBA Twittery and analytic-y. But do you remember a guy for the Spurs um, out of Pittsburgh named Dewan Blair? No. Yeah, so Dewan Blair played 
and, and I'm and I'm not mistaking this. He played a good portion of his career with the San Antonio Spurs without any ACLs in his knees. As in, he was born without tendons, or they just removed? Them? No, no, no. As in, like there was some there was some injury that he experienced. I think it was in college or the pros, where they just like this was back like 10, 15 years ago, where like like ACLs used to be like more of a a medical quandary than they are, where people were just kind of doing what they could to put him back together. And Dewan Blair, Dewan Blair was the exact same sort of Grant Williams, Draymond archetype where he was just a ferocious, meaty forward who had had terrific vision, knew the game, had great timing, had great second jump ability. And he just survived out there. He just, <laughs> he just sort of grinded his way. And, you know, I hope that's the case for Jonte, but no, it's, it is tragic. It's tragic that he didn't get picked. I was hoping he'd get picked. You know, another guy that kind of falls into that archetype, though not much as much of a shooter, is um, Brandon Clark, who I'm surprised fell as far as he did. I had him ranked, like, significantly above Rui on my big board. Yeah. And I think what you're getting out of Brandon Clark on the defensive end, just right away, you could see contributions. Just even more so than DeAndre Hunter and whoa, 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 okay okay all right i'm i, I i'm one of those not, and he exposes not, his anti tony bennett bias <laughs> at least Kyle Guy was in a first round pick i would have lost my shit <laughs> <laughs> Jerome uh, was no Ty Jerome was and he deserved to be oh, okay okay all right <laughs> Gonna put our foot on the brake on that. Um, yeah, so I thought I thought the most impactful, like in terms of the NBA landscape right now, the most impactful trade of this draft was that that Pelican Hawks bonanza that David Griffin or- orchestrated at the last second, where the Hawks got the number four pick, which turned into Hunter. They got the wretched Solomon Hill contract. Don't get me started. <laughs> and then. 22nd rounder and the Pelicans got number eight, which turned into Jackson Hayes number 17, which turned into Nikhil Alexander Walker. So they wasted 17, but then number 35, (laughs) they got Marcos Luzada Silva, who tonight I just did a quick YouTube on and he is just a something else. Truly. Like I, I was shocked by his play style. You want to give me a little rundown? It's like the whole thing is dependent on change of pace. Like he, he's not very lateral in terms of his dribble moves, but everything is rooted in using hesitation, using like misdirection of his head where he's looking to kind of lull the defender into a trance. And then he just takes off baseline or he takes off for like a scoop. It's, it's an interesting sort of play style, and it, I, the way, <laughs> I don't know the way that you're de- the, the way that your description is fi- filling out in my head reminds me of a like Timothy Luau Cabarro type. Yeah, but like Cabarro still thinks he's like a three point gunner. This guy isn't so much fixated on the on the long ball. Well, it, I'm reading that he shot forty seven percent from three through 38 games last year for the i think it was i think it was lower volume though okay 
Yeah. See, I didn't. But, I didn't hear his name at all in the pre-draft process. Um, as a, yeah, I didn't either. As a four, I, I didn't. I heard a lot about Seiku, a lot about Goga. I heard a lot about um, the who the who did the Mavericks take again in the end of the towards the end of the first round. Uh, the Mavs took. Where is it? Let's see this. Or was it early second round? Oh no, the Spurs. The Spurs took um. That- oh, you're talking. No, the Mavs took. The Mavs took um. Davidas Servitas. Yeah, I, I heard about Servitas. I heard a lot, a lot about Lucas Maniac. But this, this guy from Brazil, who, with the Palace, like I, I, I didn't hear any coverage about him. So it's gonna be interesting to see if they pull kind of a draft and stat with them, or they can work him in the rotation right away next year. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not. I think he's. I'm not gonna be one of those guys that's just gonna sit here and pretend to know things about international prospects who I've just watched a few highlight videos of on YouTube, and I right. and I think that's what a lot of like self heralded draft experts claim to do. <laughs> and I'm just oh, one yeah. of those guys. I, I I'm gonna be straight up. The only player that I watched a lot of film on was Goga and a little bit on Seku, and Goga definitely impressed. In the minutes I watched him, he's got a lot of those Ennis Cantor comparisons. Still doesn't know quite how to use his feet on the defensive end. But, um, yeah, I didn't watch any film on these second-round international guys. Or, like, honestly, most of these second-round picks at all. No, you're you're completely right, though, because, like, the Bleacher Report guys or, like, the CBS guys, you know, they'll, they'll do their little tangent on the – the international prospect and they'll say something like something snide like oh yeah and he projects as a three and d guy at the next level and i'll just be like okay the dude that this guy was defending in you know lithuania you know he he like he, he's a shepherd as his real job you know like, <laughs> he's a beekeeper yeah like you have absolutely no idea what quality of basketball occurred in this league. You know, you have no idea how stylistically different the pace is. You know, like, just stop fucking pretending. The reason that this team took this player is specifically because they know something that you do not. Exactly. And the only the only guy that I can really feel at least somewhat confident in terms of international scouting um, – in the media is Mike Schmitz who like founded draft express and now works for ESPN because he is, he is just compulsive international fan. Literally just go, go to these, like, goes to these like Puma sponsored Euro league events and watches like, just like Lithuanian division three leagues with like a bag of popcorn. Like it's his fucking occupation. Dude, I I'll be honest. I love Schmitz, but that guy gets on the television set. And he looks like he just snorted like eight lines. Oh, he's a deer in headlights. <laughs> through like a crumpled dollar bill and then shoved like three caffeine pills straight up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> like he is fucking wired. <laughs> Dislike a prospect either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's just really into everyone. Oh, yeah. He. Everybody is like a diamond in the rough to him. Uh, okay, so would you like to play a little game? A little, a little, um, you know, good-spirited game. Not necessarily like prophetic, this is what the truth is sort of game of who was underpicked and who was overpicked. 
yeah, uh, I'll dabble in that. All right. All right. I don't want to I don't want to make you sacrifice your principles and your truth. You know, I just want to you know, just play an innocent little game. So I'll start off. I'll, I'll go underpicked. Um, I thought Eric Pascal was underpicked. I really like Pascal's game watching him at Nova. Um, he for, for a guy his size and for his girth, he elevates extremely well on his jump shot. And that's something that will help him as he's being defended by lengthier guys. Um, you know, he's really aggressive on the boards and he, he's one of those guys who knows how to use his body to carve out space. Um, I think we'll agree on this one. I thought, I thought Schofield was seriously underpicked. You know, Schofield was heavily underpicked. Schofield, heavily. like I think Schofield projects as pretty much being able to do exactly what PJ Tucker has done. Um, and to me, that's worth a little bit more than late second round. But, you know, who, who did you think was underpicked? I think Zion was underpicked. I think you should have to waste three top <laughs> ten picks to get Zion in this draft. <laughs> yeah. No, on, a, on a serious note, um, I think Brandon Clark was underpicked. I already discussed that a little bit. I think what he's bringing from a playmaking perspective, from a defense perspective, and in comparison to some of the guys – that got drafted above them, like Thibault and the kill Alexander Walker, Romeo. I think he's bringing a lot more to the table right away than them. Um, I think Tom and Gelly was underpicked as well. Okay. I thought, that, okay. I thought that Tom and Gelly got enough hype in the pre-draft, pre-draft process alone for like a team like the Pistons, just grab him at like 15. He went, um, he went 27 to the Clippers, right? Yeah, he went 27. The Clippers actually traded up to snag Kamengeli. Yeah, I saw that. And Kamengeli's that rare, like, 6'10", 6'11", was just a beast in, on the interior defensive end this year. Just low-volume three-point shooter, but, like, kind of a kind of a good shooter. Has a decent-looking stroke. Kind of looks like Jaron Jackson shot almost. Um, just just that, that rare combination of quick feet can has bounce really good size for being a sophomore in college still very young malleable and i think he's the type of the guy you can take into your team and your scouts and your front office can kind of mold him into the type of player that you really want him to be and i think that was rare in any draft but especially in this draft so i'm surprised that he wasn't a late lottery or early teen pick in this yeah i I like Kamengeli too. I think that he occasionally, watching Florida State last year, I think he occasionally suffered from bouts of Andrew Wiggins syndrome where he would just be on the Wait, floor. Taking, taking contested 19-footers? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, there's different symptoms. That, that's one <laughs> symptom. I'm talking about the Andrew Wiggins um, syndrome symptom where you just sporadically disappear completely from exerting any sort of meaningful effort on the court. And you just, and you just like, you you look like you're on Demerol, just kind of scanning the baseline, (laughs) you know, just like kind of cautiously pivoting and um, hovering around like the arc. I think Kevin Gelly had instances of that, but no, I like when he was on, he was on, he actually reminded me a lot of, 
his teammate Jonathan Isaac near the end of this magic season, the way Matt, the way Isaac was just, you know, just full out attacking the rim. Like I really like Calvin Galli when he's going a hundred percent. I'm glad that you brought up Jonathan Isaac too, because yeah, towards all also break Isaac was one of the better defensive players in the entire NBA. Not to mention he, kind of got that offensive side of the game going for him too but um another guy that I want to talk about that was kind of interesting with the Wolves did is Jarek Culver because originally when the T-Wolves traded the um, that 11 was it the 11th and what other pick to the Suns oh they traded um who did they trade they traded Dario Saric to the Suns oh you're right they, they traded Saric in that 11th pick and there were it was in the Woj rumor mill that they were looking to dump off that seventh pick for other assets, right? And they take Culver, and I think they realized, oh, Culver's an awesome value here at six. I think we're gonna hold on to this guy. Yeah, I mean, as someone who spends an inordinate amount of time bashing the uh, the Wolves' front office for mostly Thibodeau-related infractions, I thought this was. I thought it was shrewd, <laughs> to be honest with you. I thought it was really shrewd because Saric, Saric has kind of been exposed as a certain liability on defense, and teams have kind of figured him out to an extent. And so, like, unloading him where his value was still respectable was a good move. And then, you know, I know you're, a, you're an ardent Jarrett Culver supporter. I am a – All fashion Culver <laughs> I am a hesitant and cautious Jarrett Culver supporter because I need to see him knock down that three consistently, especially in the catch and shoot. I just think what he's bringing you from a playmaking standpoint, what he can do when he gets double team and pass out of that to the guy in the corner, what he can do with his floater, his just – his offensive arsenal is so expansive and just getting out of those. When he, when I watched him in the NCAA tournament, that game against Virginia, Culver, absolutely horrendous shooting performance, right? But yeah. what actually stood out to me about Culver is when Virginia would trap him in the corner at the perimeter, when they would run the press, he yeah. just did not turn the ball over a lot. He had very, very few turnover, bad turnovers all year. And for a guy who was his ball dominant, his in Texas Tech's offense, that, that was really impressive to me. It stood out how many passes he was able to make out of double teams. No, for sure. And it makes me it makes me think that, you know, a lot of people on Twitter were talking about, oh, how are him and Wiggins going to play together? It makes me think that the Wolves might be planning to either get rid of Jeff Teague or lessen his role and let Culver take some of the, you know, ball dominant initiator responsibility on offense because you're right his his passing instincts are you know outside of Morant I thought he was by far um the best passer in this draft oh absolutely. Um, and yeah you're right like be, being able as a rookie if you want to get on the floor having that sort of offensive savvy where if you're in a tight spot on defense and just knowing where to go with the ball like that's the, that's the stuff that can get you reps early. So you're not, you know, sitting on the bench for a year and a half and, you know, watching your career fly by. Um, okay, but we do have to finish up the other side of the coin of our 
underpicked and overpicked game. Um, whose name are you willing to be smirched by calling them overpicked? Um, easy one, Darius Basley. It's kind Basley. Of like, it's kind of a cop out because he's a high schooler, but um, I just I just don't see it. Even uh, just as a first rounder in general, I don't see it. But then again, I also said that about Anthony Simons last year, and then he just like dropped like a forty piece for the Blazers, like the second last game of the season. So I don't know. I could be could be setting myself up for uh, just mass a uh, misstep of dude, massive proportions. Dude, but. speaking of Simons, I was watching I was watching a YouTube live stream of Simons in an open run with Nasir. It was Nasir Little. Courtney Lee was playing. Um, he he was going off. I mean, he was just like, he, he was just coming down and just yamming transition threes like no one's business. And it, it wasn't like it wasn't like the sort of like yamming transition threes that like that like Middleton does, where like it's like it looks like it's just you know obscenely high difficulty. You know, he was like very balanced, very like just kind of in in a trance in the moment and like. Oh, I, I like Simons now. I, I've done a full 180 on Simons. I think. Okay. I think I'm, he's I'm got not, good. I'm not quite there yet. I'm, I'm about like a 45 to 90 degree turn, but. All right. All right. Um, okay. I'll, I'll submit that my overpicked other than Harrow was Okiki. However, I will Ooh. fully reconcile Ooh. with the fact that I probably watched, you know, less than three entire Auburn games this year, including the Carolina game in which they blew them the fuck out. So, you know, I'm willing to, I'm willing to discuss the matter. <laughs> okay. When, 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 I, when Okigi was playing this year, I think if he doesn't suffer that torn ACL, he is a top 10 pick in this draft. Why? He, he has that rare combination of size of having a shooting stroke, of playmaking, of just understanding basketball at a deeper level as a sophomore that very few players in the country do, especially, like, on a team like Auburn, where it's just, like, a high-octane, like, just um, aggressive defensive style. And he he really shined on the offensive end as a guy who didn't make a tremendous amount of mistakes and just had the size and stability and fundamentally sound basketball as a sophomore. That would really impress me. All right. All right. Well, I'm, I'll stay open-minded on it. I just thought that, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know. Like with the guys that were there at 15, you know, we're talking, oh, I mean, you could have gotten Brandon Clark. You could have gotten Nasir. You could have gotten Kabingele, Keldon Johnson, Jordan Poole, you know, I, Pool, but, pool. You think pool at sixteen? I, I mean, we'll get into this later. But like, dude, Jordan Pool is a bucket. Jordan Pool is an absolute. No, he bucket. he is a bucket. He is a bucket. But um, I I, I think I believe you Snapchatted me that he was a swaggy, the next swaggy P for the Warriors. So. Swaggy P had a magnificent career with both the Washington Wizards and the Los Angeles Lakers. And, and if there's a name you will be smirched on this podcast, it will not be Swaggy P. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's another guy that has just more drip than a broken faucet. No, I love Poole. I just, 
I don't think like sixteen would. I we I would be calling him overdrafted at sixteen too, but um, he he does have intriguing shot creation. He does have that perimeter shot, and with the Warriors having Clay and KD out next year, I think he's going to be a guy who's going to be able to get a lot of minutes right away as as a shot creator next to Curry. For sure, for sure. Especially right. when Quinn Cooks play in the playoffs was kind of dicey. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, okay. Granted, Quinn Cook was put in a bunch of like, you know, five out assemblages where they were not at all used to, um, you know, the lineups that he was playing with during the year, and that kind of screwed a ton of the rhythm and and pacing out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I. I like Quinn Cook still. The question that I really want to ask is who is the guy or the couple guys who you envision making an immediate impact this year? Okay. See that that's a that's a little tough one, but are we should we just do three guys? Uh I mean let's just however many you think is appropriate. Okay, like I think I'm going to avoid, like, high lottery here, like, because, like... No, 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 yeah, I'm not talking about, like, Zion and Morant. You know, this isn't... <laughs> yeah, okay, right. okay, okay. Um, I've already stated I think Jared Culver is going to come in right away, get a lot of minutes just due to his decision-making ability on offense. I think that this, this is this is a wild card. I think Cam Reddish is going to come Ooh. in back. I think Cam Reddish is going to come in for the Hawks and be a big-time difference maker on the offensive end. I think wow. that I think it's wow. I think it's gonna benefit if if anyone that I watch in college basketball this year is gonna benefit from NBA floor spacing, it is Cam Reddish. I just okay. I just look at his game and I just see NBA wing. Like I I don't, I don't know how to else to explain it. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I see a lot of like younger Otto Porter, like yeah. with with better defensive instincts. Exactly, and it it honestly just comes down to consistency for Reddish. Like, the the talent is absolutely there. I mean, there were a handful of players that got interviewed in the pre-draft process about Reddish, and they said at times he was the hardest player to guard on Duke. I mean, I think think the talent is absolutely there. Um, And with Trey Young feeding you the ball, I don't know, man, I – I can see him just fitting into that offense pretty seamlessly next year. Carve out a really nice little sixth, seventh man bench roll. All right. I'm high on Reddish. Um, my my immediate impact, guys, one, one, I think, like, I want to see how DeAndre Hunter adapts to, you know, an actual NBA system in which you take, you know, a shot every – 20 seconds instead of a shot every three and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I really, dude, I really do love DeAndre Hunter's length on defense. I was, I was low on him at, at the start of the year, but then as I watched more games, I realized like how disciplined he is on defense, especially with staying vertical while challenging shots, not coming down with the arm, not, you know, coming at an angle, trying to just obliterate the ball. I think I think he can make an immediate impact. Um, PJ Washington's a guy, um, and then on the offensive end, like I, I think Carson Edwards and Cam Johnson both proved beyond a shadow of the doubt 
that over four year college careers, they could consistently night in and night out, knock down extremely difficult shots at high volume. And that's yeah. something for me, I think, in transition. Yeah, I'm on board with both of those. Um, I think that, like, your theme here is just, like, upperclassmen guards. And historically, at least in the last couple of years, we have seen that. Um, Jalen Brunson, Brogdon. Brogdon, Josh Hart, guys that. Van Vliet. Van Vliet, absolutely. Guys that can hit around that 40% clip in college from three, had savvy playmaking skills, weren't especially turnover prone, come in right away. They average eight to nine, 10, 11 points a game. They can fill it from three. And Javon they're just, Carter. They're just really, really valuable. Okay, hold on there with the Javon Carter, all right? He played like eight minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I even, see, I even see Ty Jerome next year getting a lot of minutes with the Suns, especially with the whole point guard drought they have going on there in Phoenix and real drought. They just have a tragic water drought. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. A little play on words for your, <laughs> your evening. Um, okay. So last big question of the evening as we wind down. Um, who are your picks for guys that went undrafted, but you think are going to make rosters? Okay. I'm going to start with Lou Dort. Yep. From Arizona. He all year projected to be a late first rounder. Even in the pre-draft process, people were talking – early first um, or, or late first, early second. And right. I, don't, I don't know what happened if it was at the combine, if scouts saw something that threw them sideways about him. But I truly, just for the life of me, cannot understand why Lou Dort went undrafted. I, I don't get it either because I watched – Arizona State, that Bobby, Bobby Hurley team was really up and down. You know, it was really sporadic in terms of – you know, if they showed up or not, but their one consistent flair every night was Lou Dort just owning the boards, just like carving out a home underneath the opposition's basket. Oh, yeah. And he's so strong. It, I just can't just fathom why he versatility and just impressive scoring skills. Like, a, just one of those straight-line drivers to the basket, muscular build that can just kind of bully his way in there, can finish around the rim. And I th- OKC already signed him on a two-way deal. Yeah. And I would not be surprised to see him actually even get on the floor this year in the same way that Trier was able to for New York. Granted, OKC is going to be a lot better, but I, I really like Dort. And I, it's, it was a true shock that he went undrafted. Dude, I'm glad you Another brought, guy. I'm glad you brought up Trier, though, because you know that – I was I was reading a story that Dort actually did exactly what Trier did is that he got he got contacted to he got contacted by a couple teams in the end of the second round to get drafted and apparently he like turned them down in favor of signing that two way with OKC just like Trier turned down a couple draft mm-hmm. nods to sign that two way contract with the Knicks. And I think there's a lot of more of that going on that we don't hear about is guys that really want to take initiative and don't want to be stuck in a system that doesn't complement their skills. And so I think we're, there's more of that that occurs 
than we believe. Like another guy like Terrence Davis from Old Miss, who was a early like second round projection, and another shocker that went undrafted, and um, he's actually looking for a guaranteed contract. He says he's not taking a two way deal. So, Bolt. he's playing. Some, he's playing summer league with the Nuggets. And dude, he's he's just nuclear athlete, like one of the most athletic players in college basketball this year. Um, kind of remind me a little bit of Melvin Frazier. Um, I, with Melvin go to Tulane last year. I remember he's on the Magic now. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know. I didn't watch enough Terrence Davis film to really project how he's gonna be out in terms of a score in the NBA. But he he he's a pretty lights out shooter he's got that athleticism but i don't know really know like what kind of void he's gonna fill what kind of niche he is as like a role player in the nba but i definitely think that he's another guy that we're gonna see come in and at least get some minutes as an undrafted rookie yeah i'm with you there um my picks my picks off the undrafted chart um you know i (laughs) i'm one of the I'm one of the the few who went went beyond the uh, the all bold caps YouTube highlights on Jalen Leak, and I sat down and watched some okay. of his AAU stuff from Reddit. Okay. Streams. Um. So basically, right now, Jalen Leak is he's basically like a carbon copy of Trey Duvall. If Trey Duvall added like eight more inches to his vertical. Um, Duvall already has hops. Oh, no, 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 no. Duvall has hops. Jalen Leak has springs. I mean, Jalen Leak, like, Jalen Leak has, has, has goddamn pogo sticks as an Achilles tendon. I mean, he, he's taken off from the elbow and his own <laughs> is, is in somebody else's nose by the time he gets to the rim. I mean, it is... <laughs> It is absolutely ridiculous. Um, his jumper, it, oh, it's a weird discombobulated, like, multiple procedure sort of process where it's, like, it's swaying to one side and then it's coming up and then it, there's sort of, like, a flimsy sort of, like, arcane, um, like, lean back to it. it. It looks like he learned to shoot by watching, like, a textbook visual, like, step one, step two, step three. It's like, it's very bizarre, and it's not smooth, is what you're telling me. It's a bit frightening right now, yeah. But okay. if you could put that together, like, I don't think the Westbrook comparisons are ludicrous at all. Oh, oh hello. Um, it's just he he signed with the Suns um, for summer league, and I think a two way, and I just think this is indicative of just how discombobulated the Suns are in terms of finding a future point guard. I mean, you took Ty Jerome, who one of the most established and least athletic players in the draft, and then Jalen LeCue, who the youngest, least established, just highest vertical, most athletic, nuclear, just powerhouse of an athlete. And so maybe, maybe that was strategic. Maybe they wanted to fill up both ends of the spectrum there and see if they can find something to fill the void. But I don't know what the Suns are doing. I don't think anyone – I don't think the Suns know what they're doing. No, if the Suns knew what they were doing, I don't think Eric Bledsoe would have to lie about his barber shop in order to get the hell out of there. 
um yeah so the other my other pick for undrafted has to be hollywood naz Um, (laughs) hollywood naz okay you know and i I actually i get why he went undrafted because there were times during that sec season where he was allowing whoever and their mother and their infant toddler child to get by him you know like his, his defensive effort was not laudable in the slightest. But kid can shoot, man. Kid can really shoot. Kid, kid understands a lot about that elbow-to-elbow face-up game, like where to position yeah. his hand, how to keep a guy on his hip for the passing angle to the backside three-point shooter. Um, he demonstrated a lot of just, like, NBA instincts that, like, you know, my specialty is undersized bigs like the Caleb Swanigans, the Grant Williams. Like, that that's where I'm looking. And okay, but Nas is 6'10". Like, dude's pretty tall. No, but but it's a very unorthodox, non-traditional, non-conventional sort of 6'10", where he's carrying he's carrying a little bit of he's carrying a little bit of love in his hips. He's carrying a little bit of love in his torso. And he lost a lot of weight upon arriving at LSU too. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, I'm pretty sure he lost, like, 20 to 30 pounds. He came in at, like, 280, I read. Oh, no. And he he was down to, like, 250. He he came in looking like Kennedy Meeks. (laughs) (laughs) He came in. He's a big boy. Um, It's just, um, it looks like he lacked some fluidity and balance in his game at times. His assist-to-turnover ratio was 0.9 to 2.5. Yeah, like he's he's a still very very raw prospect who looks kind of selfish offensively at times. Plays tries to play like a guard a lot. Doesn't use his strength in the best way. Like, and these are all fair criticisms, but at the same time, like peak peak Hollywood Naz looked really damn good, especially operating in that kind of elbow to elbow region, which you said. Yeah, I I actually thought Bol Bol and Naz were much more comparable than anyone would think, given like where their weaknesses and strengths lied. Okay, that's my. I mean, that's it's not, it's not the worst, not the worst comparison <laughs> I've ever heard. That's my bold declaration to finish us off. Um, well, guys, thanks for listening. Um, Logan, can you uh can you educate the masses on where to find us? Yeah, so this is going to be on the Lead Sports Media Podcast Network. You can also find us on the Anchor app as well as Spotify. That's right. And don't forget to tell your friends, your grandsons, your goldfish, your little goldfish in the jar, uh, the little fawn who scampers through the yard back door. Um, you know, tell everybody about the luxury tax and have a good week, everybody.